You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's talk about the Iowa primary. You say, there's no primary. Iowa has a caucus, right? Well, that's true. But 104 years ago, Iowa did have a primary, or at least they tried a primary. Primaries were the thing back then, and they were accelerated when Theodore Roosevelt, the ex-president, decided to challenge the current president, William Howard Taft, in a Republican contest. And so friends of Roosevelt in states across the country, more than 20, developed primaries in order to pick the preferential preference. This would counter Taft's advantage, particularly in the Republican Party. You had a number of sort of Roddenborough Southern delegates that were never going to be able to carry their state in the election, but nonetheless could influence the presidential nomination. And usually these were people who had been given jobs by Taft or other presidents. So they were loyal to Taft. Roosevelt would counteract this with the authority of the people in primaries. Iowa didn't quite get around to the primary craze of 1912, but they passed a bill in 1913 so that the state might have an influence on the 1916 nomination contest. So they made the right arrangements for elections in the various counties. That's going to include staffing, ballot counting operations, payroll, making sure that there's locations to vote in, advertising the primary. It cost the state of Iowa $122,000, a princely sum at that time. And in 1916, none of the major party candidates actually signed up to be on the ballot. And only a third of Iowa voters actually showed up. The governor, William Harding, started grumbling about this. And in 1917, the primary was repealed. Harding is not the future president, Warren Harding. This is William Harding, governor of Iowa. He'd become infamous a few years later for two things. One is that he instituted the so-called Babel Law, which required the speaking of English in Iowa. This was during World War I. And there are a number of German-American communities in Iowa, none too pleased with this. And then the next year, he was impeached. For it was alleged taking a $5,000 bribe in order to pardon a prisoner. He was later acquitted, but he was finished in American politics. But on this front, Harding and everyone else were in lockstep. Iowa didn't need a primary. They needed to go back to their roots. Harding made clear in his message, arguing for the repeal of this Iowa primary, that the spirit of the idea of the primary should be preserved, and that is to remove the control of a few political bosses over the nominating process in the country. And Iowa would do this, but in the way it was used to, 
a caucus system used to pick Iowa's delegates to go to the party convention. A caucus, we think, is an Algonquin word for a meeting of tribal leaders, meeting of people who should be of like minds. It's a less formal political process. It's cheaper, and it's well-suited for rural areas. And Iowa is known to be the main caucus. It's conducted slightly differently in different places, but it all shares that quality to avoid the cigar-filled smoke rooms where nominees picked. And so, pretty soon, 1,600-plus caucus size of all types, people will meet in Iowa and choose a nominee. In this year, it's not the Republican Party where that's going to be so important, although there will be a caucus. It is in the Democratic Party. Now, most of these caucuses are going to happen in high school gymnasiums, church basements, dancing halls, and fire and ambulance volunteer company buildings, wherever there's an equivalent space. There are some interesting caucus sites. In 2016, at least, there was one in a gun store, a nature preserve, a grain silo, and uh, perhaps my favorite is... Jimmy B's in Bernard, Iowa, which is a bar that will host a Democratic caucus, uh, or at least it did in 2016. In these sites, you will pick a nominee in a very open, non-secret way. In fact, it's a way that would violate the law if it were done in primary states. And I'll explain that later. They'll do this in Iowa to decide on 41 delegates that the state will bring to the party convention, which will be in Milwaukee this year. Now, over 1,900 delegates are needed. So one might think, why would you even put the effort in? But Iowa has never been about the delegates. It's always been about the momentum. And it's been a kind of first chance, really, for a candidate to get their name with winner next to it. The history of it hasn't always been that way. You have Iowa caucus since the time that Governor Harding and his folks decided to change from the primary to a caucus, really not meaning all that much. It was truly just a kind of big party gathering where everyone sort of had agreed on a nominee. That goes up to the 1968 convention. And so what's happening in rural areas of Iowa this weekend has everything to do with what happened in the streets of Chicago in 1968, where hippies and protesters were making their opinion of the Vietnam War known, and Chicago cops were cracking their heads and throwing them into vans. Not good TV, not good for the Democratic Party. The Democrats lose the election in 1968, and it's awfully close. You know, Humphrey comes very close in that election. Maybe if there wasn't that kind of unrest, maybe they'd win. So you have commissions that are hosted between 68 and 72 to develop new systems. The one thing they want to make sure is that we're not going to have another nominee like Humphrey, who doesn't win any primaries and becomes the nominee. Delegates are going to be chosen by a Democratic process in every state. 
And that's what the Democratic Party decides. Now, the person that's very influential in this is the same person who sponsors a minority plank in the Democratic Convention to stop the bombing in Vietnam. His name's George McGovern, senator from South Dakota. Because he sort of designs this system, he notices a quirk that some other people don't. And that is that Iowa, because it's a caucus state, and not just a caucus state, but it has several points to its caucus. So you have the the famous and public caucuses that we're going to see coming up very soon. Then there's county conventions and there's state conventions. And then you go to the national convention. And all of this took a lot of time. So the only way to make it work for Iowa was for Iowa to go first. But it's not a lot of delegates. So it wasn't like in 72, the main candidates, which at that time would have been Muskie, Humphrey again, and uh, McGovern, possibly Eugene McCarthy. So M- McGovern figures this out. Now, wait, it's not New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire's primary, that goes back to the 1950s and, and earlier in terms of its influence. But So that's going strong. Everyone's looking at New Hampshire. Muskie's planning to campaign there. This campaign's not going to go well there, but, you know, we'll stick with Iowa for a second. McGovern decides to mount a campaign in Iowa, and um, like he receives a few letters from people who liked what he did in the 1968 convention, people who were against the Vietnam War, and he tells his staff to find any of them who are from Iowa. And so people who were from Iowa, this one woman who write, wrote, uh, Mr. McGovern, you know, I really appreciated what you did at the convention, ends up getting a visit in her house from some of McGovern's staff. Would you stand and be an activist for George McGovern in the caucuses? And, of course, she says yes. And they do this throughout the state, and they get volunteers. And McGovern doesn't win the Iowa caucuses, and that's why this story isn't as famous as what happens four years later. But McGovern does come in a strong second to Muskie, and it sends a warning shot that uh, McGovern's for real. And when Muskie falls in New Hampshire— It's going to eventually, after some fits and starts and battles with the organizational Democrats, it's going to be McGovern's nomination to have. Of course, picking up on this is somebody who's kind of his political opposite. In fact, someone who goes to the convention in Miami Beach in 72, tries to get elected vice president, heads up a, a, a stop McGovern effort of Southern governors. And this is Jimmy Carter. But despite their difference in politics here or there, Carter sees what McGovern did in Iowa, and he amplifies it and goes and campaigns days and days in Iowa, meeting people, setting up media events like Come Meet Governor Carter, media events that get a lot of attention, not nationally, but in the local areas. Jimmy Carter doesn't actually win. A slate of uncommitted delegates in 1976, we're going to go to the state conventions uncommitted. They win, but nobody cares. Jimmy Carter beat out all of his other rivals, and he then beats the other candidates in New Hampshire, does a few other things. He's kind of the St. Patrick to the Democratic snake, George Wallace. He's another Southerner that can show that there's a different path forward for Southern Democrats. This gets him a lot of attention. He splits his opposition. He win states in the North in the primary, and he gets the nomination and eventually the presidency. Iowa puts him on the map. And four years later, when Ted Kennedy challenges him in the Democratic primary, 
Iowa is there for him again. He goes to Iowa to get his nomination back. Nice ads of family man Carter running all over Iowa, in contrast to Ted Kennedy. Doesn't hurt that in a TV interview, Ted Kennedy's not able to say why he wants to be president. Carter's VP Mondale wins Iowa in 84, but Hart surprises. And just like McGovern had done in 72, he gets on the map. Well, this isn't shocking. Guess who was McGovern's campaign manager? Gary Hart. He uses that to them win New Hampshire. Winning a race between, as he says, a president and an astronaut. Improbable, eclectic. Iowa builds its reputation. In 88, it's Gephardt. And you begin to see what I think is a shattering of this plan that McGovern, Carter, Hart have, which is go to Iowa, get momentum, you know, work the local crowds, get that momentum, and build it into a national race. Well, Gephardt wins Iowa. But he's not able to translate it into anything else. New Hampshire is going for a caucus, a local favorite. Republicans, too, are holding caucus, but, you know, and in Iowa, but can't seem to make their winner stick in the snow of New Hampshire. Bush wins Iowa. Reagan wins New Hampshire. Dole wins Iowa. Bush wins New Hampshire. Now you've got a kind of a split result. In 1992, Tom Harkin wins on the Democratic side in Iowa. He's like a god there in, in Iowa Democratic politics. And, you know, the media just discounts it because he's from Iowa. So Clinton goes to New Hampshire. It's as if that 1992 race is being held in 1952, the way the Democratic Party primary schedule goes in that sense. Um, in 96, Clinton is unopposed. In 2000, there's a little action between Bill Bradley and Al Gore, but Al Gore outfoxies Brady, wins Iowa. 2004, Howard Dean comes on strong, but right after the capture of Saddam Hussein, Democrats shift to Kerry. Iowa directs the shift. 2008, it's Obama. And what's significant in second place is Edwards. Hillary Clinton comes in third place, and that's a real sign to a lot of people that the Obama campaign is serious. And now you've got three years in a row, Iowa predicting the nominee, Kerry, Obama, Clinton. All this does is make Iowa's role as a predictor just harder and harder to tell, you know. Um, let's talk a bit about like what a caucus actually is. Well, you're going to bundle up. It's going to be cold. You must be 18 years old, but you could be 17 in the Iowa caucus if you will be 18 on Election Day. Then you can have a choice on who you're going to be able to vote for. You can go to one of 1,600 caucus sites at 6.30 Central Time. If you are not a Democrat, you can register as one for the Iowa caucus. There are now telecaucuses that one can join, satellite caucuses, they call them, for military, or for those who are handicapped who are not able to make it. A 7 p.m. voila starts. You have 30 minutes of electioneering. And now this is, um, this is real politics, real electioneering. Like this is vote for Bernie, you know, uh, Medicare for all. Hey, uh, come on, Bob. You know that you agree with him on most stuff. Why don't you just do it? You know, these are the neighbors talking to the neighbors. Hey, Fred, why don't you go for Biden? He's always been there for us, you know. 
Uh, read his policy. Here it is. I, I clipped out an article. Read this. You know, he can beat Trump. You know, whatever arguments they want to make, this is what it is. And of course, it's more organized than that in most places. The campaigns try to have precinct leaders, caucus leaders, who are going to direct a lot of this attempted persuasion. Now, I'm in a primary state, and if you're in a state that's having an election and you try to do this type of electioneering in one of the voting locations, you know, they're going to kick you out. And a caucus, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. As you feel moved by arguments, or if you came to the building already decided that you're going to be there for Elizabeth Warren, or you're going to be there for Put- for Buttigieg, and, or you're going to be there for Biden, you stand in a designated area that will be for that particular candidate. And there may also be an area that develops for uncommitted people or um, you know, undecided, still open-minded. That's okay, too. You can stand there during this part of the process. But after 30 minutes, now everybody's in their places. The caucus attendees are counted. Now, any candidate that does not is not viable, and how we define viability is 15% of those attending the caucus on that day. No offense to these campaigns, and I certainly could be wrong, like an Andrew Yang or a Michael Bennett or Amy Klobuchar or, you know, campaigns that aren't as high in the polls, they may be at some of these locations not have enough supporters and they will be ruled not viable. Now, after the counting is done, there is another 30 minutes of realignment, very active politicking. And here, you know, in certain areas, depending on who's doing the talking, who from the campaign is leading it, where you, which caucus you're attending. I mean, it could be everything from, I like this guy's health care plan, you should like it, read this article, he's going to be good for farmers, uh, he'll look at his policy on ethanol, et cetera, et cetera, to, hey, maybe there's a job for you. You know, all things like this are the kind of discussions that people have. But if your candidate was not viable, you got three options here now. You can join one of the other candidates. So if you're Elizabeth Warren, say you can go to Biden or you can walk over to the Bernie group or you can decide not to pick a candidate. That's legitimate. You know, what can't happen, and this is a change from the previous, um, what can't happen, but the people who picked a viable candidate have to stay there. Now, that's a change from how it was done previously. The other change that there used to be several rounds of this realignment. Now there's going to be just one. That's Iowa 2020. So that's how they do it. Um, I haven't been to one. I would love to go sometime. You know, that's always been a, a, a goal of mine. I really, you know, I think it just has to do with the, the temperature <laughs> that that prevents me from, uh, you know, I, I become a hermit in the winter. But hey, so who's going to win this thing? Iowa benefits organization, but even that doesn't tell you much. It, but, you know, it's generally who can get people there. Who can get the kind of top-tier activists that know what they're doing and have connections in the locality? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Who has the most enthusiastic volunteers? I mean, I initially look at that and I read Bernie and Biden, but that's really simplistic, right? Because Bernie could get he has this real, you know, strong group of enthusiastic volunteers across everywhere. Biden has organizational strength, though he's the former vice president. Anyone who's had a, a federal job um, could be a potential connection for him. He's connected with the previous governors of Iowa, so they're able to help him. He, he knows Democratic county chairs and things like that. He's also run for president before. This is, would be his third time running. But there's other things to think about. This isn't the old days. People enter these campaigns very early, start hiring people, and start working Iowa a long time. So we don't know who might be a potential surprise. There's also the idea of alliances so that because there's all these caucuses happening all over the state, maybe, you know, Biden doesn't have people for every caucus. So there's been talk that perhaps he's dealing with Klobuchar uh, in, in places where, hey, if I'm not viable, your supporters will go there. We know that campaigns are doing this type of talk. It's the it, it's happened before in every caucus because this year Andrew Yang said he was approached by several candidates and he's refusing. He's saying my supporters will – I've never been able to get them to do something they don't want. If I'm not viable, they'll find some other option that they'll like to do. So very non-traditional, interesting take on it. But I don't think most campaigns are going to react that way. They're going to make some deals and we're not going to know about those probably until the night of. So you've got Warren, Buttigieg, uh, Biden, Klobuchar, Sanders, Yang. You know, I'd watch the fourth spot, watch the fourth and fifth spots here, because I think this is going to be really interesting, particularly if people start to cancel others out. And so you have the possibility of either, you know, Warren canceling Sanders out in a lot of places, Sanders canceling Warren out, Biden canceling Warren out. In some cases, the establishment voters, it appeared that like Buttigieg, for instance, moved over to the right slightly, um, and then he was roundly criticized, the whole wine caves thing, <laughs> having a fundraiser in a wine cave or something. I, I don't know what's wrong. I love wine caves, so I don't know what's you know, but I but I do get the politics there. If it were six months ago, no one would have given Bernie Sanders a chance. And now you see a lot of support gravitating to him. And I always say the organized side wins in politics. So, And another thing to consider is that a bunch of these, even uh, Clinton Sanders in 2016, Trump Cruz won. And in 2012, the Republican won between Romney and Santorum were just laser close so that they weren't decided fast enough to give the person the benefit of being a conclusive winner. You know, Cruz beat Trump in, in Iowa. But the fact that Trump even got support there, because I, I think we forget this now, but leading up to that 2016 election, there was this 
you know, this guy was such a media sensation, but is he really going to get, you know, does he have organization? Is he going to get people voting for him? And of course, Iowa answered their question. Yes, Cruz beat him, but it was like the next day. I mean, it's just so you could have a split decision like that, too. I see it between Biden and Sanders. That's just my call. You know, who knows? I'm not, I would need a lot more information to make a a more serious call on that. But um, that's worth noting that there'll be a Republican caucus. Iowa law requires this. Uh, And you have Joe Walsh and William Weld. Does not appear it'll be a race at all. And I don't think people realize how important that is, that it's not a race. That is so important to Trump's reelection chances. And it's the quietest, most under... Quietest story that's not being even talked about then, and I think it just be, it comes from people look at politics a traditional way and not enough of what really matters. So presidential elections throughout history, you lose for three reasons. The economy's bad, you can't hold your party together, or there's some kind of shame or scandal on either the domestic or foreign front. And, you know, guess what? A combination of these threes will really sink you. Ford and Carter are the two cautionary tales in fairly recent history, primaries aimed at a sitting president. And you haven't seen a serious, really serious one since maybe 92 and Buchanan, but the economy isn't terrible in 1976 when Ford loses, but he's torn apart by the Reagan challenge in that primary. Goes all the way to the convention. Uh, Same thing with Carter. And Ted Kennedy, the famous weak hand going up in the air at the Democratic Convention in New York in 1980. I mean, you're having a fight in your own party as a sitting president. Never a good sign. Showing that the party's united is a key factor in re-election. He's powerful within Republican Party primaries. He can pick, you know, who's going to be the nominee for governor. Now, it is true that certain places have canceled primaries so that there will be no contest, so that there can't be a challenge. And I don't think you can really mask something if there really was party unrest. But the reality is there isn't a lot of it. And um, there's the thing like, well, we like him because he fights, because he's standing up for things that we believe. You know, he's got that covered. If one were looking to defeat Trump, historically speaking, the most, the strongest thing you could do is finance or organize a primary challenge in the Republican Party. Maybe one of these guys, Walsh. I don't know about William Weld. I really think he ran Libertarian the last time. He, you know, he's a um, respected governor for Massachusetts, but he doesn't have a lot of pull in the party. Kasich isn't running. You know, Romney's not running. So you don't have those figures we look to. You take somebody like the campaign Bloomberg's running, and I look at it, and I'm not sure what quite to make of it. Um, best thing I can think with Bloomberg kind of spending a lot of money on ads and maybe raising his own poll numbers a bit, but is that he thinks it's going to be a fracas after Iowa, New Hampshire. It's going to be split between Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, maybe a race for the later states and then for the convention, and then he can swoop in. As the because everyone else will have beat each other to death and will be bleeding, and then he has the money to keep going. I think he would have worked a lot better as, as a Republican, which he used to be, and running a primary campaign as a Republican. Had he done that and you forced Trump to fend off a very expensive primary campaign, you know, it would be more effective in beating him if that's the goal that you want. You know, New York mayor generally is not going to 
win the presidency. I had a whole podcast on that. Just too far out there for the rest of the country. Uh, in the middle of this here, before I get on to the other topic, I want to talk about the premium podcast, really what I've renamed the extra podcast. Why is that? Because this is a premium podcast, I think. It's, you know, I put everything into my podcast. I've been doing this now for, it's 14 years. It'll be 14 years uh, in August. Um, you know, everyone has a podcast now. And podcasts are greatly influenced by Hollywood, the entertainment industry now. I think they're well-financed. They're able to do a lot. And it was always hard for those of us who have a full-time job and who are recording podcasts and doing this as kind of a hobby. Um, but the way I do support my efforts is through the extra podcast. If you could consider signing up for that, it's as little as $2 a month. Could be a um, little more for the Grover Cleveland Club where you get a little more. Um, you know, you can also just donate. That's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Com. One of the things we did recently there, it, we had an interview with uh, Paul Stone Tucker about Kent State and the events of that day. I go into a little bit more detail. For instance, there's the story of a statue that was standing in the middle of Kent State and the National Guard fired on students and became an unwitting witness to the events. Other stories, we talk about the famous photo of Kent State. We talk about what happened to the photographer and to the subject of the photo. Consider that it's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I do listen to other podcasts. I was listening to one called The City. I advertised for them on their first season, which was about Chicago. Their second season is about Reno and how this city that's kind of known for for loose morals and divorce and strip clubs and things like that is dealing with gentrification and the arrival of tech businesses, namely the Telsa, uh, Tesla battery plant, but also others. Amazon's there, too. So these two forces dealing with each other, you know, the conflict. I think the city podcast does a pretty good job with that. I'm not advertising for them on this one. This is, this is just all me saying it. It is a wondery podcast. I like some of their podcasts. I don't like others. Um, I'm not big on the horror and true crime. Did have some initial discussions when wondery started about working with them. Um, you know, just decided to go in a different direction, but I do like some of what they produce. The West Wing Weekly podcast, that's ending. I note that. I congratulate them. Um, of course, it's ending with the last episode of The West Wing. I'm a big fan of that podcast, and so shout out to them, I guess. I was hoping they'd continue the podcast. It's That's a great one. I'm doing a rewatch of The West Wing. Let's talk about impeachment. Uh, what the heck's going on? <laughs> In pure political terms... All right, let's forget about who you're supporting, who I might be supporting, who anybody out there is supporting. If you tried to find something that would be good for both parties' bases, I mean, if the two parties got together secretly, and I don't believe they did, but if they did and said, what can we do to each boost each other, this is the Trump impeachment. I mean, for Democrats... 
I know the perception is going to be that when Trump is acquitted, which he certainly will be, um, this was a waste of time. No, um, I think that you got a good three to four months where you kind of had the story. You took the media onus away from a president that's really good at kind of capturing that onus. You raised questions, were able to get a forum, and more importantly, prior to the impeachment, I think there was a lot of pressure on Democrats in the House, at least, and other Democrats from AOC or other people that are pushing them. Um, And also, there again, AOC getting the news coverage. So the squad and and that we're getting most of the news coverage, but you have Democrats in the House. So the impeachment was able to fend off some of that criticism, gain some respect among Democratic base for taking a stand. Uh, Your base doesn't like constantly losing. They like some accomplishment. And so impeachment, even though, I'll get to that in a second, even though it's not impeachment and removal, it feels like an accomplishment. But I, I think an undersold thing is that you you had the attention of the media for quite some time there, um, from the end of last year to the beginning of this year. That takes away from what Trump's able to do and uh, what Republicans in the Senate say are able to do. Okay, now on the Trump side, um, there too, I think you're both bases are getting energized now because now Trump in defense is saying, look, I'm persecuted here. I'm getting, um, I'm mad and you should be mad too. And so the Democratic Party as a whole, I mean, minus Tulsi Gabbard's mysterious present vote um, and a couple of votes here or there, you basically got the entire Democratic Party to go with the impeachment charges. And as I discussed earlier, I think that was the reason there were only two articles. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. So, you know, it's kind of this kabuki dance, like, I'm going to pretend that I'm totally outraged by this. And then on the other side, like, each one is going to appear a bit of a victim of the other's politics and let the fundraising letters fly. Um, that's just the function of what's happening. I'm not saying that's the motive for it. Impeachment. Uh, we I discussed on a previous one with David Priest about the conditions of impeachment, when you hear that it's unconstitutional, there's no way that it could be unconstitutional. It was written in the Constitution. When you hear that uh, it can't be done in an election year, that's absolutely not true. The impeachment of Andrew Johnson was in the election year of 1868. He was a potential candidate for the Democratic nomination. He received votes at that convention. Horatio Seymour ended up being the nominee, but he was viable at that convention. There's nothing that says you can't do it right before an election. Otherwise, it would have been written in the Constitution that way. You can argue that it doesn't make sense to do it. You can argue that you don't like it or something like that. But you can't argue that it's unconstitutional to do it, I believe. It's completely constitutional. I think both sides have 
more to their arguments than what they're actually saying, right? So on the Democratic side, it's going to be this kind of like, well, okay, it's not really just about one phone call, although it is in our in our articles. It's about if we let you get away with this, you're going to do more. That's their perception. And on the Republican side, I tend to believe it's like, well, we don't really like what Trump's doing, but this is a Democratic impeachment. This is a partisan impeachment. We're not going to let you do this. We're not going to let you stop this. And we're not even going to, um, you know, we'll argue the points, but we're not going to uh, examine this for months and months and months. You don't have enough here, you know, et cetera. You know, if I just look at it, I, I look at it and say, I don't like that Ukraine call. I don't like the absolutely offensive, to, you know, to uh, to trade um, a favor, you know, trade military aid for a favor. Yes, they eventually got the military aid, but that was only because it got exposed, that the call got exposed. So it's bad behavior that needed some kind of a warning shot. You needed to send a message. And I think very often the impeachment defenders, the president's defense team in impeachment would be arguing multiple things like, okay, it's some, sometimes it would be he didn't do anything wrong in the call and other times it would be if he did, there's other mechanisms you could use. Or it would be even if what you're saying is right, you didn't follow the proper procedures, you should have uh, continued in the court system with the subpoenas to get those witnesses, and et cetera. So on the other hand, I mean, were these two articles enough to remove a president of the United States? If you're really, if it, if we're really only looking at that, and we're really being honest with ourselves, and that's the question you have to ask. And obviously, I, I don't think it is. So that, so because of that, that call you put Pence in. No, I believe it has to do with built up antagonism, built up feelings about other actions that were taken, about the behavior, about how Trump talks, about how he refers to the press, about. Where a lot of people will see a tragic impeachment or um, an impeachment that should have went through and didn't go awry or the procedure that never should have happened, an awful partisan thing. I see it as kind of a, a national conversation in the dysfunctional politics era we're in right now. The Democrats used the weapon that they had, the one that they have for controlling the House. And the House is the popular body, and it has that power for that reason. They brought a charge. And the charge was, you know, at the time of I'm recording this, I don't know, but probably rejected. Okay. Uh, One great moment of the impeachment that I thought is that when you had the time where each side could ask questions, the questions went through Judge Roberts, and the questions were read, and then they had to be answered by one team or the other or both. And I just thought that was a great forum that we should have more of that. We need some kind of controlled, filtered talk in politics today. I mean, it's not working on social media. This this Facebook where people just comment right under another. Nobody's listening to each other. Uh, there's, there's no general audience for it. It's just like uh, gotcha comments. And I think that uh, if you had Democrats, Republicans, possibly others on a routine basis, maybe once a month, we're forced to do something like that. It might be interesting. So... I enjoyed the questions probably more than anything else, and I listened to the questions and answers from both sides. I made a point of not shutting myself off to one or the other. 
which is really a lot of the battle. It might be said you'll never be able to have any kind of filtered or controlled national discussion. It's always going to be a discussion rooted in do do both sides even want to have the discussion, which I see in most social media, where eventually you just get to, oh, shut up, Uh, I'm canceling you or something like this. Uh, But you think about it. You look at a real estate transaction. Now, there, two sides are utterly opposed, utterly opposed. One wants to pay less. The other wants to pay more. Utterly opposed. And yet through filters, the realtor agents, the realty law of the state, the protections, let's say, in an escrow fund, um, things that both parties decide it's at least enough in their mutual interest to submit to, a real estate transaction is done. I don't have all the answers, but you know, it seems like a direction to go in. So you could have a lot of history here. You could have first impeached president to be um, reelected. You could have first president to be impeached twice because I think that because of the not allowing the witnesses in the Senate trial, you run the risk that's going to be seen as unfair. And the impeachment is forever, but so is the impeachment of Bill Clinton. So is the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. History generally has washed away some of these impeachments. It does create a little bit of a mark on that president. Um, The more impeached presidents there are, the less that will be. You've just had two in 20 years. And if you count Nixon, which he really was impeached, he just resigned before he could be, that's one every 20 years. So we're we're going at a rate here in the modern era. Um, What does it really mean? It's, It's almost like indicted. You know, impeached is like indicted. I put charges. So you are a president. The charges have been put forward by the people's house. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean removed. It doesn't mean convicted. So will it be used by every president? Well, yeah, if you have the House and the Senate, I think impeachment will be used and you'll start sending charges to the Senate when either party's in power and has enough votes to impeach the president and you know, and there's some kind of cause. Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi didn't didn't want to impeach immediately. You could argue maybe that secretly she did, but at least in the public statements, it wasn't until the Ukraine call that that happened. Now, if that's something of that nature happens with another president, yeah, I, I think you'll see more impeachments in the future. What does it mean? Well, I think the more you do it, the more it lessens the value, and that goes both ways. It lessens the possible pushback for doing it. But when we talked to David Priest and we talked about the Clinton impeachment, you know, he made a very good point that the Republicans didn't really suffer that much. One election where they won the House anyway, but just lost some seats. They won the presidency and held the presidency in the House and Senate for a long while after that impeachment. So I brought up that system that I enjoyed of that asking the questions and having some kind of filter. You know, American politics right now... It's a lot of emotion. Things were always partisan. You have to really go back. Don't, you don't have to go back to Washington if you don't want to. You don't have to go back to the Civil War, people, you know, beating people to Senate with canes. But um, just go back to the Bush administration. And if you think things weren't partisan in the early 2000s, you're crazy. I mean, um, some of the websites about George W. Bush at the time um, – and the way Democrats were treated, I mean, 2004 Bush ads showing Kerry 
you know, because of Kerry's policies and then showing, you know, body armor disappearing from soldiers in the field. I mean, just nasty politics were going on. You know, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have the pile-on kind of, of social media as much. But, but I think the main thing that gets missed is listening. Like, people don't even want to listen anymore. <laughs> they don't even want to. They don't want to hear the other side. And some of it's because one side. There are people on one side or the other who make themselves unhearable. Uh, you know, you just don't want to bother. That's that's a politics of extremes. And you know, we're running into that. Hey. I got a microphone and I uh, thought I'd talk a bit about the Iowa impeachment and I guess the universe. Thanks for listening. Website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.